Father, now I pray that you would uh, put a deeper, truer, fuller gratitude in our hearts for your love and how you have taken us from enemies and made us sons at your table. God, I pray that as you open our eyes to see uh, that particular aspect of your glory, that you would also transform us into that same image from one degree of glory to another. As we hear your word preached, I pray that you would train us in the righteousness that reflects your glory uh, so that we could enjoy knowing you and being yours even more and being an even clearer and more powerful testimony to the world around us. God, I pray that you would work now in our hearts in every way that you know is needed for every person here. And I pray that the words I speak and the things that all of us think about during this sermon would be acceptable in your sight, our Lord and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you'll open your Bible to Matthew 5, and we will continue today our series in Matthew. Today we'll finish chapter 5. In this part of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, He's teaching His disciples what true righteousness looks like. And if you are His disciple, you should be hungry for that. Jesus said earlier in chapter 5, this is something that will characterize people after He saves them into the kingdom of heaven. He said those blessed people will hunger and thirst for righteousness. But we still need to be taught how to live a righteous life. And what does that look like? Someone might well answer, well, it looks like doing what God commands in the Bible. That's true. But here's a problem. There, there are people who seem to embrace Scripture's righteous commands, but, but the way they view them and teach them goes against the actual goal of those commands. And so the words of Scripture can be misused to justify what is unrighteous in God's eyes. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is warning His disciples about that very thing and training them to see the real heart of the righteous instructions of God's Word. Now, if you lived in Israel in the time of Jesus, you would probably think that the scribes and Pharisees were the people who could tell you the truth about what God's righteous commands really required. Right? They seemed to be strict devotees of the Bible and give their lives to study the Scriptures. But remember this shocking thing that Jesus told His disciples about those esteemed Bible teachers. He said, uh, they aren't going to heaven, and if you aren't more righteous than them, then neither are you. In verse 20 of Matthew 5, He said, I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The rest of chapter 5, we've seen Jesus expands on that. He gives six specific examples of how the Pharisees wrongly taught God's commands versus what true fulfillment of them really means. Six times he says, you have heard it was said, 
But I say to you, to, to show this great distinction between Pharisee righteousness and the righteousness that's greater, that exceeds them, that is more, which God promises to grow in everyone who receives His saving grace. So we can pull from today's passage three basic guidelines that spell out this greater righteousness. That is true. And the first is, bless your adversaries. Bless your adversaries. Look at verse 38, where Jesus introduces the next law of God that he wants to exposit. 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Yes, that's in the Bible. Uh, Three times in the law of Moses. It's part of the Old Covenant. This was a guiding principle that God gave to the judges in Israel for when they had to sentence a person found guilty of injuring his neighbor. The punishment should fit the crime, in essence, right? Not be too severe in fairness to the perpetrator or too lenient in fairness to the victim. So, so how did the Pharisees misapply this law? Well, we can infer that from what Jesus says next to correct their view. This is the first half of verse 39. Jesus said, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. The word resist here means do not set yourself against the evildoer. Don't don't make yourself the opponent of the one who does you wrong. Don't return evil for evil then. Don't don't retaliate in evil doing. Don't think, you've wronged me, well then I'll wrong you in the same way right back. Eye for an eye. The Pharisees were saying this principle that God gave to guide judges in the law courts of ancient Israel gave them justification for personal vengeance, for holding grudges in their heart and acting on them as if this law code was a green light from God to do unto others the wrong that you think that they have done to you. How, how upside down. These, these verses in the Old Testament were supposed to restrain individuals from nursing grudges and returning evil for evil, right? Let the judges sentence fairly. That was supposed to help people not feel the need to resort to personal retribution. We must not take vengeance into our own hands. We're called to trust that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And Romans 13 teaches us that earthly governing authorities are instituted by God, uh, like those courts in ancient Israel, to be God's servant, carrying out some measure of his vengeance and wrath on wrongdoers. Romans 13 says that, but what's amazing is that the chapter right before Romans 12 says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. So, so you see these 
really two passages in Romans, and you can see how wrong it was for the Pharisees to, to take this guidance for Israel's judges and use it to justify personal vendettas and revenge-seeking. Uh, they were supposed to restrain vindictiveness and retali- in retaliation by, by creating a just justice system. The Pharisees made it a license for resentment and returning evil for evil. And so Jesus said it straight. Don't make yourself an adversary to your adversary. And, and in the next verses, Jesus will give four illustrations of this principle of righteousness. And the first is at the end of verse 39. Look at that. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, the main focus here is not physical violence per se, but degrading insults. Remember in chapter 5 when it talked about cutting off the right hand, because back then that was the dominant hand people were trained to use. Okay, so now this verse talks about being slapped specifically on the right cheek. So if the right hand would be the main slapping hand, to be slapped on the right cheek by the person in front of you, that would be a backhanded slap. And in ancient Israel, and still in many cultures, that is an especially demeaning insult. It's a big indignity. So this is not just an issue of of physical assault in this verse. Chiefly, I think this verse is teaching, if someone insults you and demeans you bad, don't insult and demean them back. Now, secondarily, I also think we can make this application. If someone assaults you, I don't think you have the green light or should just assault them right back. To say this verse prohibits right, self-defense or attempts to flee physical harm, I I think really is missing the actual point. The apostle Paul fled persecution. In John chapter 5, Jesus hid from a crowd who wanted to stone him. It was not yet his appointed time to die. The the real point here is is not returning evil for evil. It, It is better to be sinned against twice than it is for you to sin in response to one. When someone slaps you on the cheek, so to say, you you come to a fork in the road. Who will you follow then? In response, you can become like the one who sinned against you and repeat his evil doing back. Or you can be like Jesus Christ who died to redeem us from the evil doing that was done to you. Remember, at the end of his life, Jesus was insulted, he was demeaned, and he was literally slapped in the face. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. His father, whom he trusted, loved him. He left heaven to be mocked and slapped and worse so that he could bring us to heaven with him and so he could transform us so that we would have the kind of righteousness that will fit in in heaven. Namely, his own blessed meekness, which is greater righteousness than the Pharisees. So when you're at this fork in the road and you've been sinned against, You remember 
these words and, and remember this counsel from the Puritan Matthew Henry. It is better to serve Christ than serve your own lusts of pride and revenge. Pride will kill you. Jesus loves and saves you. Now, now look at the next illustration Jesus gives of this greater righteousness. In verse 40, If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So, so now we're called to go beyond mere non-retaliation to active blessing, which is why I didn't title this main point simply, Don't Repay Evil but bless your adversaries. And it's like we've seen in the previous parts of Matthew 5, isn't it? The true righteousness that fulfills God's laws, it goes above passively avoiding evil deeds. But, but it, it also actively pursues the opposite kinds of good. Jesus illustrates, imagine someone takes you to court to take your tunic. Don't say in your heart, okay, then I'll sue you right back to get your tunic. Instead, say, do you need a coat? You can have mine if you need one. And, and giving your cloak in this verse probably has some extra significance because in the old law, in Exodus 23, you, you couldn't legally take and keep a person's cloak. They needed it for warmth and bedding. So it's like Jesus is saying, if an adversary gets what he can legally take from you, then still in your heart, then be ready to voluntarily give what he can't legally take. If it would bless that person. Again, the point here, don't press too hard. It, it, it's not that a Christian can't make a defense if he's attacked in court. Paul, in the book of Acts, defended himself in court more than once. The point is, you bless your adversaries. Even beyond what they could persecute out of you. You, you think, I... I want to be willing to give the shirt off my back to help even the person who steals other clothes. Set your heart on the good of your adversaries. Again, this is like Christ. Remember, the soldiers who nailed him to the cross, they took his tunic, they took his cloak, and they left him to hang naked on the cross. It was part of the shame of his suffering for us. But as he hung like that, watching them uh, divide his cloak and cast lots for his tunic, right? Still, he saw and he stayed on the cross and died in the place of sinners like that to save them from sins like those and from the punishment they deserved from, for them. So we see what Christ did for us and, and we, we say, that's our salvation, well, if that's your salvation, then, then you follow in his footsteps and seek to bless your adversaries. Now, now, verse 41 is another illustration. takes us from the courtroom to the field. Jesus adds in verse 41, If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. In those days, a Roman soldier could force a person who lived in 
a Roman-occupied region like Israel, to, to go with him a ways and serve him, often by making him carry something for him. So, for example, this word translated force in verse 41 will be used again in Matthew 27 when soldiers force Simon to carry the cross of Jesus. They could do that kind of thing. And first century Jews, they, they resented these random Roman impositions. It reminded them that they weren't free, though in their own land. And then comes Jesus, and he says, if someone makes you serve him like that, even in this way that you despise, when you're done, then you be willing to serve him freely. Go the extra mile, not just for your buddy, but, but for the overbearing boss, or, or for the person who imposes themselves on you somehow to serve their good. If you are hungry for the righteousness of heaven, then, then serve them not just when and as they demand, but more of your own accord. Right? Like our Lord Jesus again, He laid down His own life of His own accord. He served in the greatest way freely. Now, the last illustration of this guideline, it comes in verse 42. Look at verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, think about this one. Uh, You may question how this fits with the prior three verses. We were talking about people who wrong us, people who do something evil to us, like taking from us our possessions or our service or our time. Now we're just talking about someone who's asking for help. Understand the connection. The the same kind of unrighteous attitude that would make you a vengeful person will also make you a stingy person. Reluctance to give and reluctance to forgive go together. Think, both are the opposite of mercy. That says, I will give to people what I think they deserve. Some people deserve payback because they've done me wrong. And some people deserve nothing because they've done nothing to merit my help. Right? You see that? It's the same kind of no mercy, tit-for-tat mindset that, that makes you hold grudges against people who wrong you, and makes you begrudge people who need you. Jesus says, give, do not refuse. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, Galatians 6 says. And and like the previous verses, this instruction is also a call to be like the Lord, like God. Jesus says about God the Father later in the Sermon on the Mount, God gives to the one who asks of him. Ask and it will be given to you. Everyone who asks receives. Your Father in heaven gives good gifts to those who ask him. And Jesus says here, you be like that too. If you hunger for righteousness, give to the one who asks from you. God does. 
Now, this doesn't mean that we throw out the window all other scriptural wisdom about giving and lending, right? Like, uh, don't give bread to a person who refuses to work. Or really, just don't give to others in a way that actually harms them instead of blessing them. And this is like our Father in heaven. He gives good things to those who ask Him, but, but not always what was asked for. If He knows it isn't good or wouldn't do good to the one who asked. You give likewise, in a way that's good and generous. Now, one good gift is pertinent to this passage. One good gift Jesus told us we should ask for from God is the Holy Spirit. I say that pertains because that's really the only way that you can do what these verses say, is if the Holy Spirit is working in you, It works in you by faith in Christ. The Spirit can empower you to be more like God in this way. God who is generous and gives to all without reproaching or criticizing the one who asks. Now, before we we move on, I I want us to zoom out and, and see again the big picture of these verses. What Jesus says in in verses 38 through 42, after he quotes an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that Old Testament law, he's bringing out the true fulfillment of God's laws, including the righteousness that that law, uh, that legal code was pointing to, against the error of the Pharisees. They they said these verses justified being vengeful and tight-fisted, They were designed to promote the opposite in Israel. And actually, there are many other verses in the law that explicitly condemn those attitudes. For example, Deuteronomy 15 says, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, like the Scripture says God does with his hand. Lend him sufficient for his need. You shall give to him freely. And your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. God's always been after the heart. God said in Leviticus 19.18, this is a very important verse. Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You heard that one before? The first half of that verse very clearly undermines any defense of, of personal retribution, vengefulness. The second half of that verse, well, well, that's what Jesus wants to rescue next. Look at verse 43. 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Huh. Did you hear that last part when I read Leviticus 19.18 earlier? Uh, No, I didn't either. But first century Jews had heard Pharisees say that when they taught how to apply Leviticus 19.18. And so Jesus brings out the true way that this command applies to one's enemies in verse 44. Look at verse 44. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you 
So here, here is this passage's second major guideline. For the greater than Pharisees' righteousness, which is true, love your enemies. So here's, here's how the Pharisees reasoned. They say, well, Leviticus 19.18 It says, don't hold a grudge against the sons of your own people. Ah, well, that must exclude then the enemies of our people. And so when it says, next, love my neighbor, that must be very narrow in scope and and just mean love my brother, my fellow Jew. Well, so long as he's actually treating me like a brother and and not like a Canaanite, not acting like my enemy would. You remember in Luke 10, we hear this same kind of special pleading about who actually counts as our neighbor. Jesus tells a religious man, love your neighbor as yourself. And he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus clarified there what he clarifies here. Our neighbors include our enemies, the way God uses the word. Our neighbor is anyone who's close enough to interact with and love, be they friend or foe. Again, Jesus is bringing out here what was the ultimate goal of God's law all along. Even the Old Testament law said... For example, if you meet your enemy's ox or donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall rescue it with him. That's Exodus 23, 4 and 5. And really, this verse in Leviticus 19, doesn't it present... Loving your neighbor as yourself, as what you should do as the alternative to vengeance and grudges. It is. And so even in the verse, it is calling you specifically to love the neighbor that you might be tempted to feel vengeful towards and harbor a grudge against. Our enemies. Or, or those who are acting like enemies toward us in some way. Wow. The true righteousness of God that he calls us to in his laws, it goes higher than mere non-retaliation against those who wrong you. It, it even goes higher than just doing something to bless them. Righteousness rises to love them. Augustine wrote, Many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they are struck. Now I know that there are different kinds of love the Scripture speaks about. Uh, But I would argue that every kind of righteous love goes deeper than merely doing actions that help others, just like heartless behaviorism. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 says, you could give away all that you have, presumably to help those who need it, and still not have love. 
It's more. Love always includes a heart-level desire for the good of the other. Where the welfare of the other is not just what you work for, but what you want. D.A. Carson explains, to love one's enemies, though it must result in doing them good, cannot justly be restricted to activities devoid of any concern, sentiment, or emotion. There's no reason to think the verb here in Matthew does not include emotion as well as action. Wouldn't it be so out of step with what Jesus has taught us in Matthew chapter 5 to say, oh, when he says love your enemies, that's just your actions. It doesn't have anything to do with your heart. Jesus calls his disciples to, to have or at least to hunger for this kind of love, even for those who act like enemies. You say, wow, uh, what, what would that kind of love even look like? Well, in the second part of verse 44, Jesus showed one very specific way that, that you can show this and grow in this. In, in, in enemy love, you pray. Pray for them. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about this. He said, through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. What a picture. Moreover, if intercessory prayer is an expression of what love we have, it is also a means to increase our love as well. It is impossible to pray for someone without loving him and impossible to go on praying for him without discovering that our love for him grows and matures. And I think he's right. To pray for someone, it does express a kind of righteous love that goes down to the heart and is touching the desires. To plead with God for their good indicates you want their good. It is love. Love those who wrong you in prayer. And here again, we see the glory of this righteousness. It shines most brightly in the face of Jesus Christ. Christ's murderers were watching him die and they were mocking him. And he saw how they delighted in his death, wagging their heads at him. And he saw their hatred and he heard their scorn and he prayed for them loving them. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And that's one of the most loving things you could ever pray for someone, that they would find the forgiveness of God through repentance and faith in the work of Christ. And this prayer pleases God because God loves his enemies. We saw it at the cross in the most astonishing way, we, but we also see God loving his enemies in creation all around us every day. In the next verse, Jesus offers that as the reason why his disciples should love their enemies. Look at that. Verse 45. Love your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. 
and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And you shouldn't think, well, yeah, but I mean, God kind of has to if he's going to give everyone rain, right? When his people were slaves in Egypt, do you remember this? During the plague of darkness, darkness covered all Egypt except light still shone on the land where his chosen people were. And so God did with all the other plagues. Absolutely God could make a distinction in how he gives these blessings of creation. But he doesn't. Every day that you see the sun shining, you should remember this. That is God's sun. He made it rise today, and it is very purposeful. He is making sure that it shines on both the good and the evil. And the man who hates God most in your neighborhood, God is purposefully making sure gets as much rain as the saintliest Christian on your street. Why? Because God loves them. He loves his enemies. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He gives good things to them freely, even though he expects nothing good in return. While they walk in their own way serving idols, still he satisfies their hearts with food and gladness. And you think about this. God's sun shines on sinners who don't acknowledge him every day. Day after day after day after day, God's love expressed toward enemies, it is steady, it is prolonged, it is patient love. If, if, you, if you are not a Christian, don't think so long as God's sun shines on you that his love for you has run out and your opportunity to come to Christ has closed. One day it will close, but his sun shines on you now. He loves you. You can come to him. This is our Father. And, and in context, mainly what the verse is saying is we show that we have become his children through our faith in Christ, when we also love our enemies like that. That's one way it should become obvious that a Christian has been brought into the family of God. You, you start to see this, this distinct family resemblance emerge, which is love for enemies. Uh, like chips off the old block of our Father who is in heaven. And, and if you won't love your enemies. If you say, you know what, I've got a lot of love for other people, then you should ask, is the love that you show those other people really? Can it be a clear demonstration that God has made you his son in Christ? You need to understand this. Even lost sinners can love non-enemies, and they do. Without God's saving grace working in their hearts, people love, truly love, people who aren't their enemies. 
by God's common grace. And this is what Jesus says next in verse 46. Look at verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Verse 47. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? That kind of love is is just the flip side of that payback mentality we saw in the previous paragraph. Just a graceless mentality where you pay back evil for evil and, and you only love really as payback for being loved. But the righteous love of God is freely given to, to those who deserve the opposite. If, if you only love, if you only show love to others when they are treating you well, then how can you really know whether or not that love is, is not just an expanded kind of love for self? All right, children, listen to this. Children, this is a good test for your faith right here. Right? You might show love to your siblings when you're all getting along and they're not annoying you or getting in the way of something you want. Even people who reject Jesus can do that. Pharisees can do that, and they're proud of it. But, but children of God who repent and trust in Christ, they can love differently. If you repent and trust Christ, you can love in a greater way than that. Can love your siblings and others from the heart even when they're complaining against you, getting in your way, or even worse, when they're wronging you intentionally. Uh, Let's bump it up in age level. Youth, right? Youth, do you feel and show love to others at school or at work or your parents? Not just when they're, you feel being super loving towards you, but even when it seems like they're against you somehow. That, that should be one clear difference between the Christian and the person who doesn't care anything about following Christ. Of course, every adult should examine themselves in the same way. I hope you were and are. These are really strong words in verses 46 and 47. The groups of people Jesus chose, the tax collectors and the Gentiles, Gentiles in this context, they're people who who don't know the true God and, and really had no desire to live according to His law. Tax collectors, they were the most despised kind of Jewish sinner in those days. They were sellouts, working for Rome, taking money from their Jewish brothers, and actually cheating their brothers for their own advantage while they did. So Jesus really picks the two groups of people that the scribes and Pharisees would most despise. And he says, even they, even, even obvious heathens, even greedy traitors can love those who love them back. Even they might offer warm and loving greetings to the ones who do the same for them. Let us never feel self-satisfied if that's the only kind of love we show. Romans chapter 5 says that, that a person might even be willing to die 
to help a good person. But God shows his love in that while we were still sinners, against him, that is, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God reconciled us by the death of his son while we were enemies. Romans 5.10 Now you may hear all this and, and, and think, I don't think I can do that. And if that's what you're thinking, good. You're right. You can't do this out of the goodness of your own heart. Because there's a lot of ungoodness in your heart. Sin, naturally, apart from the grace of God. So what should we do? We should do what Jesus told us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. We go to God poor in spirit. And we tell Him, we confess, we are bankrupt in terms of righteousness. We can't be righteous like this on our own. And we go confessing our sins, grieving over how we have sinned against Him, even though He has shown so much love to us. And we confess how we haven't likewise shown love to enemies, and we can't in our own strength. And the good news for you, repenting sinner, is that the death of Christ was for those sins of His people. So, so you can be brought out of the band of God's enemies, and, and be brought into the band of God's sons who have His Spirit, who call on God as their Father. And God makes His sons able increasingly to love like He does. Yes, even enemies. Christ has done all that is needed already for you to be forgiven and for you to love like the Father's Son. There is no prep work of righteousness that you need to do before you can walk by the grace of Jesus and grow in this kind of love. You just come to him with a heart of repentance and trust that the grace of Jesus and the power of the Spirit is enough for me to walk in these footsteps of love behind my God. You live abiding in Christ, and you can. Now, okay, let's, let's get practical again. Very practical. Verse 44 gave one very practical expression of this love. It was praying for enemies and opponents. But, but, but there are more practical expressions of this kind of love that we can pull out of the verses that follow. For example, verse 45, think about what God is giving. He's giving sun and rain to people who don't love Him. What does that accomplish? That's what people need for food, for their practical needs to be met. Sun and rain keeps the earth fed and living, sustained, watered. So we love like God, loving those who don't love us, by finding ways to meet practical needs. If we see some that they have that we can meet. Like Scripture says elsewhere, right? If your enemy's hungry, give food. If he's thirsty, give something to drink. That mirrors God, making the sun shine and rainfall. And then in verses 46 and 47, here's another practical idea. See how these two verses made parallel loving others and greeting others. Greet them. A very simple thing, yes, but so is prayer, right? Initiating and, and giving a loving greeting, it can be a true expression of 
greater than Pharisees' righteousness, which is like God. And, and that's the crux of this, isn't it? All of it. In almost every verse of this passage, we have said, this is like Christ, and this is like Christ, and this is like the Father, and this is like Christ, and this is like God the Father in heaven. Yes, what true righteous living looks like is the imitation of the character of God, living uh, to reflect His perfections, especially His perfect love. That's what every command of God is meant to reveal ultimately. Every law of God, Old Testament, New Testament, it ultimately points us toward His perfections. And so it is when Jesus gives his final statement to wrap up all that he said in these six examples of true righteousness, Jesus makes that the foundation of it all. In verse 48, look there, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So here's the last guideline Jesus gives to explain the greater righteousness of his people. The true righteousness of God's commands. Imitate your father. Imitate your father. That's why you bless your adversaries and love your enemies ultimately. Because this is a way you imitate your father who is perfect in every way. Be perfect as he is perfect. That, that's really saying the same thing that, that other scriptures do. In other words, like, be holy as he is holy. Or walk in love as God loved us. The same thing from different angles. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now the verse is not teaching that you must become perfect in order to become God's son and be saved. If you could make yourself perfect, you wouldn't need to be saved. It's saying that God's perfect character, his perfect righteousness, his perfect love... That, that's what we must aim to reflect if we have become his child by trusting in the work of Christ. After all, right, we've heard one evidence of salvation is that we're hungry for righteousness. If you're hungry for it, that means you recognize that you still lack it and you want to grow in it. You're not perfected yet. In chapter 7, same sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his disciples about prayer. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? So in the same breath, Jesus affirms, God is your Father. You're His, my disciples. You're saved. And He affirms quite strongly, you're not yet perfect. You are evil. You still have sins. So don't get the wrong idea from verse 48. It's teaching us that the goal of true righteous living would, would be to, to imitate our perfect Father and display His glories. It tells us we should never settle for any Pharisee-like twisting of the Scriptures that turns God's commands into a lower standard than that, reflecting the perfect love of God. And that's what you need to see. To, to wrap your head around the big idea of all six of these examples, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you, you need to consider the truths that Jesus wrapped around all six examples. What did he say right before? What did he say right after? Right before the first, he said in verse 20, 
unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. What did he say right after the last of the six? He said, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, that, there you have it. Those are the two opposing goalposts that someone could use the Bible to move toward. You can take the words in the Bible and misuse them in a way that will just make you increasingly like a Pharisee. Or you can take the words of the Bible and try and keep them in a way that will make you increasingly like God as you trust in the grace of your perfect Father. And a real Christian will do the latter, not perfectly, but truly at some level. While someone who has a Pharisee heart might end up very religious or even very, very conservative, but actually will be no different from the rest of the world in the heart in terms of true righteousness. That is the ultimate slam on the Pharisees that comes in verses 46 and 47. Pharisee phony righteousness that seems to be based on the Bible, like love your enemy and hate, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the same as Gentiles and tax collectors. That is the same as those who don't even pretend to care about what the Bible says. So the reason Jesus says, if you're not more righteous than a Pharisee, you aren't headed to heaven, it's because Pharisee-type people actually are not any more righteous than the irreligious world. That's the devastating conclusion of chapter 5. The way Pharisees live, for all their professed love of the Bible, what more are they doing than others? Has their interaction with the Bible made them actually distinguished from the rest of the world in righteousness, from those who have no attachment to the Bible? And, and Jesus says, God sees the answer is no. It's the same level of righteousness still. It's just under the cloak of religion. But their righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of a tax collector. Their kind of missing the point of the Bible religion doesn't change the heart. They, they think they live according to all these Bible verses, but God sees that the way that they justify themselves... They end up just like the world without the law of the Bible. What did we see? They, they end up hating, lusting, lying, unfaithful, and unforgiving. And so Jesus, Jesus turned this question in verse 47. He actually turned it toward his disciples, didn't he? He said, what more are you doing the others than others? What more? Are you salt in the earth, distinct in some way? Is your righteousness greater than the Pharisees, which might be more respectable in the eyes of man, but in, in God's eyes, it is no greater than pagans. Right? Does your profession of faith in Christ and commitment to His Word, does it make a real difference? Does it make you distinct from the world and more distinctly like God from the heart? Jesus shows us in all of these examples, but here at the end of chapter 5, one especially clear dividing line between real godlike righteousness and, and mere religious worldliness. 
and it's this. How do you treat those who wrong you? Can you love them? And perhaps nowhere can we see more clearly this righteousness that's greater than the Pharisees, that exceeds the tax collector, that a righteousness that is more than what you could be by yourself without being saved from your sins. It's the love of God that's on display on the cross. That is the central truth of Christianity, the love and grace of God on display at the cross. And so the central feature of Christian righteousness is the love and grace of God displayed on the cross starting to grow in us. And, and a significant feature of that love is that Christ didn't die for good people who loved him first. He died for enemies, sinners, tax collectors, Pharisees, Gentiles. What wonderful love God has for us. And, and since we have such a loving Father and He's made us His own in Christ, we must not live like Pharisees who just imitate the world under the cloak of some kind of Bible-based religion. And in fact, if we are His true children, He is too good of a Father to let us do that for long. True Christians imitate God as beloved children. That's the path of truly righteous living. Trusting in His love, trusting in Him as your Father, trusting in the death of Christ, and in the context of that living relationship of grace, we can start to keep His commands in ways that reflect Him and make a real difference in our hearts. Father, thank You that we don't have an empty salvation that makes no difference. God, we thank You that Your grace is real and concrete and cleanses our hearts so that we don't become just more religious versions of the world who doesn't have or love the Bible, but, but that your grace in Christ makes us actually grow to be more like you. I thank you for how sufficient and complete of a salvation we have, for the promise of transformation, for the promise of forgiveness, for how we fall short, have, and will, and also for the promise of final glorification. And I thank you for your promise that one day we will see Christ and we will be perfected in love and will reflect your perfections in, in ways we can't imagine. And I pray that you would help us uh, to, to trust in your grace until that day and to grow for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.